and welcome back to The Right Turn, your one-stop shop for all things fiction writing. I'm your host, author Jordan M. Griffin, and today we'll be talking about a packed topic crucial to the art of writing. You guessed it, revision. Revision is one of those topics that I think gets a bad rap. A lot of people hate editing or writing second drafts, and I think it's because a lot of us look at revising all wrong, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First, let's define revision just a little. Revision, in my opinion, is any change to a piece of writing, meaning that all writers do revision constantly. We revise while we write, we backtrack and change little words here and there, we decide to delete sections and rewrite them. If you're a draft writer, you might finish a whole draft with little to no revision, then go back and change big chunks at a time. If you're not, you might do constant revisions while you're writing and then finish with something you're pretty happy with. Whatever you do, it's important to realize that revision is not a separate category from writing, but merely an extension of the process. This is where I think a lot of us go wrong, and myself included, until I kind of started seeing revision differently. I was in this mindset where when I was revising, I was fixing. Everything that was wrong with the draft, I needed to go back and fix it. Your work doesn't necessarily need to be fixed. It did its job. The whole purpose of a first draft was to get on the page so you had a foundation to build from. Now, you've done that. You've built that. It's time to then make it what you want it. Think of revision more like layering paint on a canvas. If you only put down one color, it's going to be hard to achieve definition and clarity. But if you start layering colors, suddenly you have a beautiful, complex piece that you can stare at for hours. Such is the same with revision. As you're going through your story, think of layering on top of what's already there. Sometimes that does involve hitting backspace, for certain. But that isn't necessarily fixing something that's wrong, more like erasing the pencil lines underneath the marker so the final product can come through. If you're a person who enjoys revision, then awesome. I hope you use this talk to help build a list of methods, things to look out for, and some useful information for whatever revision you might be working on right now. If you don't enjoy revision, then no worries. I hope by the end of this talk, you find ways to make the process, if not fun, then at the very least enjoyable. I hope you too are able to glean some information on things that will be useful to you as you continue your writing journey. I have found in my conversations with fellow writers of all genres that there are kind of two big categories of writers. The first one is made up of very snippy writers. They can put down thousands of words in a day. They can get whole drafts in as little as a month or two. Words pour from their fingers like they've been personally inspired by the muses. Then, when they read back over their writing, they realize they reused the same words way too many times, they left four subplots hanging with no endings, they changed the trajectory three times during the course of the story, and the ending doesn't feel right. In other words, they need to do a ton of revision. I fall into this category. The upside to writing this way is that when I'm working full-time, I can put down three to 5,000 words in a day. The downside to writing that way is when I finish a first draft, it's a pile of mush. I need to go through it with a fine-tooth comb to take out the parts that aren't needed, clean up the ones that are, and really whip the story into what I saw in my head when I was putting it down. I'm going to tell you my method for revision if you write this way. It's going to sound a little crazy, but I encourage you to try it with a shorter piece, something like a few pages long, to decide if you like it or not. If it's not for you, no worries. 
but I bet if you try it, you'll see your subsequent drafts grow by leaps and bounds from where they started. Step one, print out the work in question. If it's small, I use my home printer. When I'm working on novels, I outsource this to a print shop like FedEx. Step two, take a pen and go through the piece, marking any changes you want to make. You can write yourself notes in the margins as well if you want to add something or take something out. Mark it up. Step three, open a blank document and rewrite the entire story using the printed copy as your blueprint. Yep, that's right. I, like a mad person, rewrite every single word of every piece I write multiple times. And yes, that includes novels. Yes, this includes second and third drafts of those novels. And I refuse to do anything different because of how well this method works for me. It's amazing how much you can miss if you're just reading something over on a computer screen. For one, our eyes tend to jump around more on a screen than on a piece of paper, so the experience of reading is actually really different in your brain. Two, when you're copying something over, you have to pay attention to it. Your brain doesn't get to fill in the gaps, and that means you pay much closer attention to the way your prose sounds in your head. You kind of have to read it word for word in your head so that way you can retype it. And when you do that, you catch all these little pieces that don't sound quite right. It leads to much more beautiful prose without really even trying. Now, if you don't fall into that category of writer, if you're not a snippy writer, you don't write 5,000 words a day, that method may not work so well for you. It's way too time consuming. The second category of writers that I've talked to are the ones who cannot move on until they get the sentence the way they want it. They can spend four hours on 500 words, going over them and changing them until they have them exactly the way that they want them. People who write this way tend to take much longer on their works to get a first draft out, but when they're done, they're by and large finished with the project. If this is you, then what I would recommend is being sure that you're keeping the flow of your writing intact. Because you might work section to section, pieces can sometimes feel disjointed. From one paragraph to another might be a completely different tone based on how you're feeling that day. I encourage you to find someone you trust and read the work out loud to them, even if it's an entire novel that you're going to read over a week and a half. Do so with a pen in your hand. I guarantee as you read it out loud, as you hear the words come out, you will find things that you would like to do differently. If you have no one that you trust, or your work is not in a state where you feel comfortable enough to do this process, then you can record yourself reading the work and play it back as you read along. I'm sure you'll hear places where you can go in with the red pen and make it better. Now that we've covered some strategies for revision, and a little about some ways to think about revision so it becomes an enjoyable and necessary process, let's talk about some things to look for in revision. The first one is crutch words. These are words or phrases that you might lean on when it becomes hard to make the story come out. A lot of writers will fall into the to be trap. As you look back over your work, ask yourself, how often have I used was or is? Can I replace any of those words with action words? Now, there will be sentences that you absolutely must keep your to be verbs, and they're better off that way. See the podcast on telling versus showing for more on when to use those to be verbs and when to try to take them out. But as you're rereading, see if you can pick out words that you're using consistently, like every few pages or maybe even multiple times on a page. For me, my crutch words are just and that. 
They're the filler words that I revert to when I'm trying to work out a tricky sentence or when I'm not thinking about the writing and I'm just writing down what I want to happen in the story. To give you an idea of how bad my crutch words are, I did a find replace for the word just in my last novel before I sent it out and saw that I used the word 114 times in a 300-page novel. That's over once every third page. I guarantee that you have those crutch words too. And yes, profanity counts. There's nothing wrong with profanity as a category, and many writers use profanity to really strong effect, especially if you're writing a novel for adults and you have a character that has this particular vernacular. But consider that everything can be overdone. Just as an artist needs their white space to make the colors pop, having less profanity will make the instances where you do use those words all the more striking. Speaking of dialogue, there are a few easy ways to really clean up any dialogue that may not be feeling like it's as smooth as you want it. I see authors, established and novice alike, who overuse names when they're writing. It's tempting because it adds emphasis, right? No, Nathan, I did not say you could take my ice cream. Stressing the name gives it that really accusatory feel that we want. However, consider how often you actually use the names of the people that you're speaking to face-to-face. In fact, make it an exercise. Every time you say someone's name in a conversation you're having with that person, mark it in your head. My guess is that you won't actually do it very often unless you're trying to grab their attention or are for some reason referring to them in the third person to another party in the conversation. Now, of course, this is strictly for English. I know there are many other languages where using the person's name is common to replace any pronouns or anything like that. But for English, do consider try to use the characters' names less when you're writing dialogue. Instead, I encourage you to focus on your dialogue tags. Not only will it help you keep track of who's speaking, it opens up your scene to a whole lot of extra information and movement. Consider the difference between these two short snippets. The first will not contain any dialogue tags, see how you visualize that, versus the second, which will contain every name in the dialogue tags and see how different those two visuals are. Hey, Caleb, did you do the math homework? No, sorry, Rebecca. I got swamped with English. I didn't have time. Oh, no problem. I know you've got a lot going on at home. Thanks, Rebecca. I can give you the English if you need it. No, that's okay, Caleb. I've got it. Is your head spinning yet? Too many names, right? No one talks like that. And yet this is only a slight exaggeration from what I see a lot even in published works. When you're crafting your dialogue, don't get stuck on only what the characters are saying. What are they doing also? Here's how I would rewrite this scene. Rebecca slung her bag off her shoulder and slid down the lockers to sit beside Caleb. Hey, did you do the math homework? Caleb didn't even have to check. He shook his head. I got swamped with English. I didn't have time, sorry. No problem. Rebecca blew out a long breath. I know you've got a lot going on at home. Thanks. I can give you the English if you need it. That's okay. I've got it. I didn't change a single line of the dialogue, but can you hear how much more it pops? You can feel the characters, see them as people instead of actors in a really bad play. All you had to do was take the names out of the dialogue and move them into the dialogue tags. Another place you can really tighten your dialogue is in the exposition department. All characters will say something they shouldn't at some point in the story. 
You might have a character saying exactly how they're feeling instead of hedging around it or having that lead to something else in the conversation. Or you might have a character explain some dense scientific concept to another character so the reader can follow along and understand your world building. Either way, like a chipped sprinkler head gushes water, you're going to lose tension faster than you can pick it up if you don't catch those. Instead, make sure all of your exposition dialogue is centered around some sort of problem or tension. If you need to explain a scientific concept, do so when it's relevant. For example, if a character says, Oh, stars, that's not good. What, the blinking light? Why not? It means the reactor's going to blow. Which reactor? The one we're standing on? Yeah, that one. Well, how do we fix it? And so on and so on. See how there's not this big exposition dump there? I'm ratcheting up the tension with each sentence so that the reader doesn't mind following me as I give them a whole bunch of information. This method will also help you to make sure you're only explaining the parts of the story that need an explanation. If you can't think of a problem to center your exposition around, consider moving it or cutting it so that the reader doesn't have to leak tension before they're brought right back to that cliff's edge. Speaking of exposition, it's one of the major places in the story where we're likely to slip syntax-wise. Because we're always trying to avoid spending too long on exposition, sometimes we can use colloquialisms to encapsulate what we mean in a few words. Phrases like out of your league or driving me up the wall imply that you're writing in a world where baseball and prisons exist, which is, yes, where those phrases come from, respectively. Even things like clothes hangers didn't exist until the 1800s, so if you're writing a story set in the Renaissance or before, Turns out your character should be retrieving their clothes from chests where they were folded neatly. Of course, your world does not have to look exactly historical, and you shouldn't try to make it so. If you have dragons and magic, you might be able to justify a hanger or a fork with more than two prongs. But these words are something to think about, and we'll find them most often in our exposition. One predicament I found myself in personally while writing a historical piece was between the words couch, sofa, and settee. Keep in mind the setting of this story is a high fantasy, early renaissance type of place. Which word would you use if you were writing that story? I picked sofa because it sounded the most old-timey to me. Well, joke's on me because it turns out the word couch existed in the 1300s, while sofa appeared in the 1700s, as did settee. So if I wanted to be accurate, I would have to use couch. But that didn't sound right to me, so I made the executive decision to go with sofa even though it technically wasn't the historically accurate word. This is what I mean when I say you don't have to be perfect with your syntax, and you certainly shouldn't look up every word you're going to use in the novel or you'll never actually finish writing it. But if you're unsure of a word, give it a look up. It might turn out that the thing you're trying to put in your story didn't exist until a century after your characters lived. When it comes to action and plot, there are a few common pitfalls to look out for. One is inserting unnecessary explanations. I especially do this on a first draft when I'm explaining things to myself as much as the reader. When I'm revising, I find the easiest way to spot these is when I'm reading out loud. I notice immediately that something doesn't sound right or I've thrown off the pace of the story with an extra sentence. If it's a piece of information that absolutely must be in the story, See if you can find a moment of description or a beat where it would better fit. If you're trying to fit exposition in the middle of a big action scene, for example, it will probably feel strange and out of place. 
After the action scene, however, your readers will need a moment to absorb everything that's just happened, and that's when you can sneak in those moments of description or exposition. Another mistake authors make, myself included, and I fall pretty hard into this category, is letting my characters off too easily. A story should be full of hard decisions. Every time a character needs to do something, they should be faced with a choice they don't want to make. Not the obvious choice A, which, if I don't do, the world will die, and if I do do, I save everything, but something more along the lines of, if A, my best friend will hate me, and if B, my family may never speak to me again. Those are the predicaments that not only pull readers along, but more importantly, they reveal what your character is really made of. They show what matters to your character, and that's where the heart of your story will start to come forward. If I find I'm getting the sense as I go through a first draft that my character is spending a lot of time safely tucked into a refuge and planning their next move with a full belly and their head safely resting on a pillow, then I know I need to up my stakes. This was a major problem in the story that I'm currently revising. When I gave it to the first reader, the very first thing they said to me was, I can tell you like this character because you're scared of letting anything happen to her. I can see your hand in the story by every time she escapes without a scratch. Let her decisions affect her. Let her people get hurt and let them turn away from her. If you protect her from her own story, why write it in the first place? At the time, it felt like really harsh advice. It felt like I needed to redo every single thing that I had done. And I'll be honest, it took me almost a year after hearing that to understand exactly what what that person was saying. Once I saw it, though, I couldn't unsee it. I realized that, yes, I absolutely needed to let this character make the mistakes she was going to make. Some of them weren't even mistakes, but intentional decisions that were defense mechanisms this character had. She would push others away from her before they could hurt her. This one might be hard to see at first, but there's a good metric I use in my stories now. By about the halfway point, there should be no more rest for your character. That's not to say they can't have moments where they're happy and surrounded by friends. That can absolutely happen. You need these lulls in the tension. But in the back of their mind should always be the problem they're trying to solve. Every move, every decision should be made with that in mind. As the tension increases in the story, so too should the stress the character is under. Even literary fiction follows that rule. There comes a point where the conflict between the mother and father or sisters or whoever it is cannot be brushed aside. They can no longer have a normal conversation about taking the kids to soccer practice. The tension must increase and place the characters in tighter and tighter squeezes as it does. In this vein, I have a personal pet peeve that I see all the time in just about every book and TV show and movie that exists in the universe. The dreaded love triangle. Now, don't get me wrong. I, like most people on the planet, enjoy a love triangle when it's done well. The tension, the suspense, the knowledge that one person is about to get the relationship of their dreams and the other is going to be crushed like a bug. But not only are love triangles so, so unhealthy in the way they're portrayed, including stringing two people along and playing with their feelings, and sometimes in some stories, a person dates both of them with no regard to the pain that that causes both parties. And yes, I'm looking at you, Twilight. But they're also usually solved in the worst, most baffling ways that I can imagine. 
I really hate when there's a love triangle and one character out of nowhere starts acting like a total jerk and saying hurtful things and maybe even doing actual evil deeds if it's a genre fiction story and they fall to the dark side. Especially when that character showed no signs of doing so before book three when we've got to start wrapping these things up and whoops, got to choose from the same two generic bad boys for this lady to fall for. It's just the easy way out when the author has decided, well, I don't want to make this character choose. I don't want to make this character hurt one of the other one's feelings. So I'm either going to kill off one person in the love triangle or I'm going to make the other one so undateable that they cannot choose and that makes it easy. If you're going to put your character in a position where they have to choose romantically between two people, then have them actually choose fairly quickly or lose both of them like in real life. People do not like to be strung along. And if you're in a position where you're making yourself available and the person that you're going after is not choosing you but going, oh, I don't know, I just have so many options, then you will rightfully be offended and continue on your merry way. All this is to say that your story should have some intentionality behind it. Protagonists who don't drive their story so much as let it happen to them are the protagonists that are hardest to root for. The protagonist doesn't even have to be likable or do honorable things for the audience to be able to understand and sympathize with them. Remember Macbeth? Homeboy killed his good friend, the king, straight up went crazy, and the audience was enraptured. His wife walked around scrubbing blood off her hands in her sleep. Are you kidding me? The drama! Meanwhile, Hamlet waxes poetic about how to do the right thing, and I genuinely can't remember what happened in half of that play. I'll take Macbeth, the unlikable character, dismantling his life piece by piece before I ever choose a character who does good things on accident. If a character is going to do good things, I want them to struggle with it. I want them to make those decisions and do the hard things and come out on top. A way to see if your story has that kind of intentionality as you're going through your revision process is to look at each major event and ask yourself who caused it. Was it my main character or is my main character reacting to something that has happened? Your character does not have to be the driving force of every single piece in the story, especially the inciting incident, which should happen to them instead of the other way around. But especially as you near your point of no return, your character should be making active decisions. They should be talking to people and doing things, even if it's something as simple as stealing Bill's snowblower to teach him a lesson. If you do have a coincidence in your story that you can't get away from, and it's a big one, like falling rocks killing half your characters, or a big storm disrupting a heist, make sure you give some sort of agency to that event by foreshadowing before it happens. The audience should know what can happen and what the consequences of that are, so when it does happen, they know what the event means for the characters, and they know how to feel about it. Okay, I hope I haven't overwhelmed you with these things to look out for in the second draft, and I hope I've made at least some of the process sound fun. If you, like me, have a perfectionism complex that makes it hard to even start or look at something that you know you're just going to change, let me share with you a phrase I like to repeat to myself whenever I start a revision session. It's already better than it was. Every scene you write, every piece of dialogue you cut, every change that you make is better than the white space that existed before you wrote the story. You did it. You got over the hardest part. Now you get to shape it. You get to place those touches so it says exactly what you want it to say. And don't be afraid to send it to people. 
Nothing makes me want to work on a piece more than hearing someone say, wow, this is way better than the draft you sent me last time. It makes me feel like I've improved and having someone to accompany me on the long revision journey makes it not feel so daunting. And even though in those times where maybe I make the wrong decision in the revision process, having someone say, you know, I actually liked the other version better, but I can see where you're going with it, gives me the energy to be able to try to fit those two ideas together. Thank you for listening, and I hope this talk was helpful to you. Please feel free to go back, pause, or replay any part you want to hear again. If you really liked the episode, leave a review or share it with someone you think would like to learn about revision. Bonus points of that person is currently revising a work in progress. If you're interested in telling us a story about your own writing experience, share your work with us, or you just want to say hi, you can send an email to writeturn at gmail.com, or you can click the link in the description of this episode. If you'd like to engage with the community in other ways, you're welcome to subscribe to the newsletter at jordanmgriffin.com, which will tell you when new episodes come out. In addition, I have an Instagram, which will also let you know when I upload videos. Link will be in the episode description. I had been hoping that we would get these episodes out every single week, every Friday, but it looks like we're going to be on every other week for the foreseeable future. Um, I am currently writing the first draft of a new novel and revising uh, another one. So with all of that, every other week is about as often as I can get these out. So I hope that you will join us. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying these. And as always, I wish you all the best in your own writing. Have a great day. And if it's not a good one, I hope the next one is better. See ya. Thank you.